Hey, welcome to the Engage Network podcast. We're so happy to have you join us today. Why don't we dive into another incredible, life-changing message? We are excited to have you at church. If it's your first or second time, let me just say, I know somebody probably said this already, welcome, but I want to say it again. All right, is anyone interested in what happened in Colossa? Anyone in about 60 AD? Is there anyone in this place? So many people are, are, are consumed by this. Now, I think what's important to understand is that when we begin to study a book uh, and, we, and we begin to dive into Scripture, uh, it actually gives us a new frame or a new context with, with, with which we can understand the Bible. Because I don't know about you, I do my daily Bible reading on, uh, on like my phone usually, and I use one of those plans, and it's usually quite topical, and it kind of takes me through these the subject matter and these different ideas and these different thoughts. But when we're only looking at topics, we're just jumping around all over the place and we don't always understand or pick up the full narrative of scripture. And what we have to, you know, kind of get our minds around is the idea that these are real people living in a real place at a real time. Right? Like, this is, this is a book that is a collection of stories of lives who follow God and those who do not. It is, it is a narrative that can be placed in history. So it does not exist outside of history, but it exists inside of history. Uh, and so what we're looking at here in Colossians is a town called Colossa. Colossa. And uh, I don't know if you ever wondered how did they name books of the Bible. Be like, what, like, what is a Colossian? Well, what is an Edmontonian? It's like it's a Spursgrovian. What's a Stony Planer? I'm a stony planian. That doesn't work. So you're stony planer, stony planite. I don't know. So if if, he, if 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 Paul was writing a book to those in stony plain, he'd be like, he just call it stony plain because he couldn't he couldn't figure out what to say in any other way. Now here's what's really interesting: small town in a tri region, huh? Okay. Stony Plains, Spruce Grove, Parkland County is a tri region. Colossa was a tri-region with Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossa. Colossa was the fast-growing uh, first town on the block that was exploding on, on a trade route. And then as time started to pass, it started to be less and less and less successful. And all of its neighbors started to surpass it. And so it went from being like the chosen place to being like the forgotten place, like the third wheel in the tri-region. Uh, we're not going to name which community is the third wheel in this tri-region. Not this week. Come back next week. <laughs> but it was impacted in the church at Ephesus. So 100 miles down the road, the Apostle Paul starts a church in a city called Ephesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, Ephesus. So he, he starts a church in Ephesus, and, and, and it ripples out in Acts 19.10. It says that this went on for the next two years. This was Paul in Ephesus, so that people throughout the province of Asia, not Asia as we know it, Asia as they knew it, uh, both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. So this God is doing something in this place called Ephesus, and that's the, peop, the city where he wrote the book Ephesians uh, 2. I know, it's, it's amazing, it's mind-boggling, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around, but this guy named Epaphras hears about what God is doing there, moves to Ephesus, goes to the church there, is so impacted and so transformed that he hears the call of God. And God says in his heart, you need to take this back home. you got to take this to your people, to, to your place. So he heads back, and Epaphras starts this church in Colossae, and he's connected with Paul. So when he's hanging out with Paul in Rome, in prison, which is when uh, Paul wrote this letter in about 60 A.D., 
Epaphras is talking about the struggles of the church, talking about the ideologies and thought processes, talking about what's going on, the problems that he's facing, what's going on in the community. And so Paul starts to address the things that are actually happening. So when an issue pops up in scripture, it wasn't just a random idea. It was like, hey, this is what we're, we're dealing with. Now, how do we deal with this in the light of following Jesus? Because the way that you might handle it when you're not a Christian and the way that you might handle it when you are a Christian should actually be probably two different things. I'll just leave that one there for a moment. That's for somebody. And so as we jump in to Colossians, we want to be aware that Colossians was written at the same time as the book of Ephesians. So you see themes that are interwoven, and also at the same time as Philemon. Philemon, Philemon, Philemon. It's Philemon. Wow, I've already done one service, and I cannot speak. That's Usually we save that for the fourth. But he actually goes to the church in Colossae. So there's a separate letter that actually gives us direct context as to what's happening actually in the church. And that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. I think Pastor Savage is probably going to deal with all the hard stuff later. And uh, yeah. So as we, as we wrap our minds around, we have to understand that these books don't just happen in isolation, that they're real people with real lives, with real problems, going through real struggles, and God is addressing certain things. So with that in mind, let us jump into Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. If you're ready, say, I am ready. ready. Praise God. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. Now we have to understand that Timothy was viewed as, uh, by Paul, it was a father-son type mentoring relationship. You can write this down and read it later, First Timothy 1, 2, and you'll fact check me later. This is... This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. I want to flip us over to the ESV version, the English Standard Version. You'll also find this language in the New King James, NIV, and a whole other uh, of slew of translations. What happens when we're tra- translating the Bible is people put the best words in that they can understand. And sometimes different translators actually help us get a complete picture because it gives us this complete camera angle. So looking at the New Living Translation, it says this, this letter is written to God's holy people in the city of Colossae. But in the ESV, it says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And I love that word, saints. I think we've, like, we've ruined that word. Uh, we, we've saved it for dead people. And uh, he's writing this letter to people that are very much alive, that, that they are saints, that they are the people of God. And, and what we can understand is that, uh, it's, this is super cool to me, is that he, this introduction is full of so much stuff because I think sometimes we forget that we're people that have a purpose. That we're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. And so Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the word apostle means sent one. So Paul, who is a sent one, is writing a letter to the saints who are set apart. 
So the Apostle Paul is a sent one, and he's writing a letter to those who are saints, who are set apart. Meaning, in the very introduction, we can find that these are people with a purpose, because that who was sent by God is writing a letter to those who are set apart from God, which means that if you are in a relationship with God, there is purpose that is running through your veins. Sometimes we're trying to figure out, what am I going to do with my life? What's the will of God for my life? What's the direction? You know, And we read magazines and, and like top ten ways to figure out that you know what to do in your life. And the truth is, if you follow Jesus, you have purpose because it's in your spiritual DNA. The moment that you accept Jesus in, you are a set-apart one. You're set apart for a reason. You're set apart for a purpose. You're set apart for a season, which means he's got a plan and purpose for you. So if you feel neglected or you feel overlooked or you feel like you don't have a trajectory, the truth is you've been set apart for a season. And maybe if you haven't been released into a season, it could be a timing thing. So stop trying to push the pace. Or... It could be that you're waiting for God to move, and he's like, but I've been waiting for you. Because there is a forward motion that is implicated in being set apart and being sent. Sometimes we wait so much. We're just waiting for God. We're waiting for a sign, and then he gives us everything that we asked for, and we wait for two more. Like, but I haven't heard an audible voice yet. Now, here's the crazy thing. The only time we hear an audible voice from heaven is in the New Testament when the Lord uh, speaks to Jesus, and it's two times, and he says the same thing each time. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So what he says to you is, this is my son and my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. So stop waiting for me to say, go and go because I'm already well pleased. You're already set apart. You've already been purposed to accomplish something. Now, when we go through Colossians, we learn that Colossians is actually a, a, do, a study on the doctrine of Christ, okay? A study on the doctrine of Christ. You know, you might hear us talk about Jesus a lot. We've been, we've been accused of talking about Jesus a lot, and for that, I will say, bring on the accusation. I will never not talk about Jesus a lot. The matter of supreme importance to the church is her doctrine of Christ. Our Christian life and service will flow out of our doctrine of Christ. We are what we think. So in Proverbs 23, 7, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Not only must Christ occupy the central place in our lives, but our understanding of Christ must be accurate. We can avoid all the errors that Paul warned against in this epistle by keeping a proper view of Christ. So when we're trying to understand how does Jesus fit into our lives, this book could be broken into two parts. Super practical. Part one is made up of chapters one and two because there's only four chapters. And I'm thankful for only four chapters. Otherwise, we'd be doing this for the next 17 years. Chapters one and two, we could call, and I, I know you're all writing this down, Jesus first. Parts one and two, cha- part, part one, chapters one and two, Jesus first. And then we shift in chapters three and four. And you could call it Jesus first in our lives, a practical application of what we just learned about Jesus. So chapters one and two is what does it look like, uh, like who is Jesus? And part two is really like how does that impact my life? It's kind of like you might be asking yourself, how come someone stands up at the end of every service after we hear an entire message and they give a four Monday? It's like, did we not get enough preaching? The truth is, no, you can never get enough preaching, but... 
You're lucky I'm on a timeline or be making jokes about this. But the four Monday, sometimes what, what my job is a lot of times is to, to bring a big idea or a big thought and kind of drop that out there. The four Monday takes one distilled practical piece of th- something that I can do tomorrow to make Monday better. And here's the truth. Sometimes it makes Monday better for me, but sometimes it just makes Monday better for somebody else. So the first thing that we can wrap our minds around when we're trying to get a, 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 the doctrine of Jesus is that Jesus is first. He is foremost and he is supreme. We find this in Colossians 1 verse 8 at the very end. It says, so he is first in everything. So Jesus is first in everything. So Jesus is first in everything. Not some things, not most things, everything. The truth is... As we begin to evaluate our lives, which I hope we will do as we look through the lens of Scripture, if there's anything else that is getting uh, top billing in my life, then it needs to be removed because Jesus should be first in everything. I think this struggle happens, especially if you've got kids, especially if you've got a young family. Sometimes we feel guilty about not putting our families first. So our default setting is all kids, all the time, family first. But the reality is it's not family first, it's Jesus first. Because Jesus is the one that carries and sustains my family, and he's the one that's gifted me and graced me and given me the great gift of a family. So I'm thankful for the gift that he has given me to steward as a parent. Arrows in a quiver, it says in Psalm 127. And Seb's got so many more arrows that he's ready to shoot from his quiver. So many kids, right? That got really weird. I did not mean any of that. Wow, let's walk that all back. I should probably go now because that was strange. Can't say that at Weka. Anyways. So Jesus. Uh, that one's going on the internet for sure. So Jesus is first in everything. So we bring our families into alignment. When we bring our families into alignment, we find peace. Not a peace that we can make happen, a peace that surpasses all understanding when Jesus is present, when Jesus is worshipped. You might just be, I don't know, maybe you just got engaged and you're like, my person is my number one. Incorrect. Jesus Christ is your number one. If your person is the number one, your marriage will struggle. You're like, I don't think that's true. There's a lot of people that don't have Jesus. Right. They're doing like a 7 out of 10 because that's where they cap out at. When you add Jesus into the mix, things get better. Why? Because he created marriage. He created relationship. And plus, marriage is a perfect picture of intimacy with Jesus and his church. So we are the bride of Christ. So nobody else gets it better. When we bring our lives into alignment with Jesus first, everything comes together. I like it when a plan comes together. Uh, yesterday we were out at my uh, parents' acreage and and doing all kinds of crazy things. Everett was driving a quad and almost hitting things, and Kingston was sledding. and And Kingston doesn't really like to do outside things, so the fact that he uh, started loving sledding was just the greatest thing of all time. In fact, if you were to ask Kingston today, "Is Jesus first in his life?" he'd say, "No, it's sledding." And uh, so he was just going hardcore. We were even like building jumps. Like he really aggressively progressed. He's like, "Dad, I want to fly so high," and I'm like. I'm so proud of you, son. 
But then we get home, and I was kind of hoping that, that that would drain all energy from their bodies, that, you know, that they would get home, and they would just be like, you can just go to bed now. And the truth is, I don't know how this happens, but when I sit down on a couch, my energy level goes from like 10 to zero, but their energy level goes from zero to a million, and they're just so fired up. So I did what any rational, logical parent would do is we put on Paw Patrol, because you're like, we just need to make you food, so you just watch this show, and Kingston's usually all into Paw Patrol, and we get into the episode, and we're, Des and I are doing things, and all of a sudden, I notice within seven minutes, Kingston is gone. I'm like, uh-oh. I don't think you're allowed to lose one, uh, but he's in the house, and so it's fine. I, you know, I knew we could track him down, and we find Kingston, and he's now Ryder, okay, and he's got the jacket. He's got the suit. He's like, he's ready to go, and then he comes, and he's like, Dad, I need help moving my Mighty Jet downstairs because he was watching the Mighty Pups episode, which you, none of you really know until you know, but then you really, really know, and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm down with the Mighty Pups, and so... He, he gets the thing, and all of a sudden, you know, seven minutes, he goes from, like, watching and having no energy to being full of life, playing, fully in character, captivated, alive. And the truth is, that's probably what needs to happen when we read the Bible is that we get tired of watching an adventure and we want to start living the adventure. That we understand that when we crack this thing open, it comes to alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and things start to happen when I put my life into alignment. And I'm tired of reading about it. I want to start living it. I want my faith to reflect what the Word says it should. And this is what starts to grab me in Colossians 1 verse 6. It says, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. Come on, that's exciting. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God, about uh, yeah, God's wonderful grace. That same news, that good news that came to you is going out all over the world. The church in Colossae was the product of somebody who put Jesus first. Epaphras was so changed and transformed when he encountered the good news of Jesus that he said, I cannot keep this inside. I have got to get in the game. And so he moves 100 miles down the road to his hometown. He says, I can't, I can't just passively let my life go by and acquire knowledge about Jesus. Somebody needs to know because it changed me so dramatically that somebody's got to know. I think the further away that we get from our initial salvation experience, sometimes the more and more we take for granted the life-changing, transform transformative nature of Jesus. And the truth is sometimes, oh, this is going to get me in trouble. Sometimes the further away we get from salvation, the less we begin to see transformation, not because Jesus isn't willing and able, but because we just stopped the process because we thought we got this for now. Let's just roll it back to verse 3. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. So if we just flip over to 1 Corinthians 13, 13 you'll actually see that the three things will last forever faith hope love the greatest of these is love and you'll find that the fundamental elements of their faith are actually made up of faith hope and love and Paul starts commending them they're known for their incredible faith but here's the thing faith without works is absolutely dead so you need faith mixed in with a little bit of love because the love is the thing that pushes us and moves us to action 
It's the love of Jesus. You could have faith and you can have knowledge, but if you do not have love, then you are just smart. But here's what got me. That faith and love comes from this confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. A confident hope. I was at a funeral this week and I, and I noticed something, you know, something that actually Pastor Harmon from, from Weka had said, he said, you know, uh, Christian funerals are different because there's a hope there. That, like there's this, there's this sense of knowing that, that it's not over, like it's over, but it's not over. When you go to a funeral that does not have the hope, the confident hope in Jesus, there's a, there's a, there's a hopelessness. There's a, a questioning, and there's still always pain, but there's a different kind of pain when you know what's just around the corner. See, what the Apostle Paul did not know when he was writing this letter was that there was actually an urgency to it, because... In 60 AD, that when he wrote this letter, he had no way of knowing that in 61, 62 AD, that there would be a tragic earthquake that would literally swallow up the town that would take over 40 years to rebuild. And within 300 years, the town would be wiped off the face of the earth. He had no way to know that every person, most likely that he wrote this letter to, to was dead or would be dead. He had no way of knowing that there was an urgency to his message and that there was something special about this confident hope that they carried. And thank God for the confident hope that they carried in the midst of a circumstance that they didn't even know coming. Thank God for their urgency that they understood the fragility of life and they did everything in their power to share that love. So there's an urgency today for us because we don't know What's next in this life? But thank God, we know what's next in the next life. And I'm just tired of an existence where I'm thankful for my next season after this life, but I don't care about anybody else's. There is an urgency. At the beginning of January, the last time I preached all these services, I got a phone call 15 minutes before church that my sister at nine months with a perfectly healthy baby and an ultrasound by way of a one in a million freak accident in the womb lost her baby a week before it would be delivered. And I was preaching this message and I was like, God, you got... Some timing because I was preaching a message on seeing the victory. But I don't know if you recall it, but I was talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three guys that said, you know what? Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of the day. He said, we know that our God's going to deliver us from this. But we don't ever skip over this part. We always read it. And I was glad I read it that day. It meant more that day. He said, and even if he doesn't, I'm still going to worship him. I'm still going to be thankful. I'm still going to give him praise. There is an urgency. We do not understand the fragility of life until we are confronted with it. 
And so let us not hold back or withhold the faith, hope, and the love that we have found in Jesus. Only because we are inconvenienced by the truth. See, the thing that's so special about the book of Colossians is that it was written to this small town that nobody cared about that was a distance third in the tri-region. It was this little place that would be literally swallowed up, that would literally disappear off the face of the earth. And still, God in his infinite wisdom chose to speak to them through the Apostle Paul as if to say it doesn't matter how small or seemingly insignificant or how forgotten you think or you feel, you will never be forgotten. You are always in the eye of your heavenly Father who loves you. He sent his one and only son to die for you. And on the other side of it, when you're already a believer, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, hold on a minute. That's why we're here. This isn't just a place to gather. Because that's fun. That's good. What's better is when people constantly and consistently are discovering hope in life with Jesus. Because I have this sense of urgency that life is fragile. And God has set me apart for this season. I'm a sent one and a set apart one. Called to carry faith hope, and love. I suppose you could say it like this. Every saint has a past, but every sinner has a future. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Engaged Church, or continue your relationship with Jesus, head to engagechurch.ca. We'll see you next week.